Well, welcome to New Life today. Welcome online for those of you who are joining us again. Once again, my name is Michael. Um, I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And I'm excited for this morning because I think it's going to be a great way to finish a series, which from what we've heard from you all has been really helpful, catalytic, and transformational in the life of our church. But before we get there, there are three things I'd just love to let you know. So first of all, is that this year we've seen a massive change in our governance structure as a New Life family of churches. New Life doesn't have one church. We're a family of churches, one in Brisbane, one in Coolangatta, and one here in Rabina. Now, Coolangatta and Brisbane have been undergoing a process to appoint local elders. We have New Life Council, and we're about to step into a stage where we're going to appoint our local elderships here at Rabina. My ask would be this. We'd love to be praying about who, if not yourself, should be nominated to prayerfully consider stepping into that spiritual leadership and accountability of our church. The second thing I'd love to let you know about is you will have walked in today and you will have maybe seen that there is a massive computer. If you're online, you won't know what I'm talking about. Massive computer robot right in the middle of our auditorium, straight down the back there. That's because our sound desk was on its last legs and so we need to replace our sound desk. We're trialing a new position for our sound desk just to make sure that we can get the best spot to produce the best sound possible and our sound engineers are training on that. I wanna honor our creative team. Down the back, there's a guy named Bob who's been working tirelessly to this to get ready for Sunday. And so you may not know what the difference between sound desks are, but the fact you don't know the difference means that he has done his job well. Can we just thank and appreciate Bob for all the work he's put in, my man. And finally, next week we start our Advent series. It's Christmas, friends. Who's excited? Yes, 8 a.m. was woeful on that one. It's like all Grinches came to the 8 a.m. service this morning. So Advent's starting next week. And we're stepping into a series where we're asking the question, what does it look like for us to adore Jesus well this season? So we've decided to do something a little different. Which means next week, we're starting, not with worship, we'll have one song, but then we're going straight into the sermon. So the reason why we're letting you know this is because we want to preach into what it means to adore Jesus, and then we're going to adore Jesus together at the end, singing Christmas carols, worship songs. But, but here's the problem. If you come at six past the hour, if you click on the link at 10 past the hour, you're probably going to miss my funny joke at the start. And that's the only thing people really rock up for. Let's, no, I'm kidding. But the reason why we're doing it, we're just trialing something a little different. And it might mean that there's a bit of a different rhythm to your Sunday morning. I'd love you to prioritize being here as early as you can. We have this one family um, that comes to the 8 a.m. service that live out the back of Canungra. And uh, they've got to get two teenagers ready and out of bed. And there has not been a Sunday this year where I haven't seen them here by 7.55. And they drive from Canungra, friends. So I'm just saying, if you need some tips, I can point you to a family that can do it well. I realize some of us have different dynamics, but for those of us that can, I want to let you know we'd love you to be here as early as possible. Um, or you could be passive aggressive and not come for the sermon at all, adjust the worship at the end, which I would receive that message loud and clear. We're here today to, uh, to kind of invite three people to the platform to help us process this Crucial Conversation series. It's been a moment where we've talked about uh, deconstruction and Jesus. What does it mean to have doubt and faith? 
We've talked about what it looks like for us to welcome refugees and, and be missional in that area. We're not going to talk a lot about refugees today because Tim Buxton's already been on a panel about that uh, in, in recent weeks. Our pastor Alex Stark came and spoke about women in leadership and about how this isn't a cultural phenomenon. It's a scriptural imperative that we look to Scripture to see God celebrate women in ministry. We, we then spoke a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Scott came and spoke that miracles and medicine are not different ideas, but both ways that God outworks His supernatural power in the world. And last week, finally, I got to share with you about God and suffering. How suffering doesn't point to a God that doesn't exist, but a God that does exist. But instead of pastors talking today, we wanted to invite three people to the platform who we think their stories are rich and can help us unpack these crucial conversations a little more. Two of them are women that I respect, both in their leadership and in their faith. And one is a man who knows too many stories about me and has known me a little longer than most. Would you welcome friends by round of applause, Ellen Morris, Dr. Shema Hamer, and my father, Mark Hands. We had a great 8 a.m. service. It was a good dress rehearsal for our 10 a.m. service. It's not a dress. I should not have said that. They're both equally significant services, but the 10 a.m. is better. Amen? That was a test. Guys, 8 a.m. is just as good as the 10. You should come along. Check it out one day. So what I'd love to do now is just to introduce ourselves. You know, I know you all really well. But I'd love you to give us the context of what would we need to know about you to, to kind of understand who you are as you come to discuss this stuff today. And Dad, I'll start with you. Okay, uh, my name is Mark Hands, and uh, just to give you a brief insight into the way I think, um, I began my career as a molecular geneticist, so I knew all about DNA, realised I didn't want to do that, and I became a builder. How's that for a contrast? <laughs> Uh, I fell into, um, I've, been a, I've been, been a pastor and I've also spent a lot of my career in education. I started a school on the Gold Coast about 15, 16 years ago called the Australian Industry Trade College and that school has six campuses now and a thousand young people. So that's my, um, that's what I do when, um, uh, during the week. There we go. Fantastic. Dad's got some really great stories about what it means to suffer as he is my parent. So he'll talk through that. Ellen. Good morning, everybody. I was born in Norway, raised by amazing parents, then got chased down by John Morris, who I'm so thankful that we got married. We now have four children who we think are incredible, and I'm happy to be a part of the New Life family. Amazing. And Dr. Shamer. Oh, thanks, Michael. Oh. Let me have a look. Yeah, no, you're right to go. Oh, good. Thanks, Michael. There you go. Excellent, thank you. Um, can I just say thank you for having me and it's just such a privilege to be up here speaking. Um, I'm Shima Haima. I uh, was born in Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia. My family moved um, to New Zealand and to Australia um, when I was in my late teens and, and then I pursued medicine and studied at Griffith University and um, I'm at the end of my training doctor years and... Um, yeah, and somewhere along the way, met my husband, Christopher, and been married for a little over 13 years now. Amazing. So, yeah, and um, yeah, been at New Life for a while, laid down some roots here, and 
loving it and, and on council now. So. Yeah, so Shema actually offers leadership to our church and to me. She is one of the leaders of our new council over the family. Um, and I'm so appreciative. Already we've had two meetings and I've just been blessed by the quality and capacity of Shema's leadership. Friends, I'm going to grab this microphone. As you would have seen, one of the microphones stopped working. We'll go with the one from Keys, Bobby, my man. And where we'll start is that, you know, I've learned a lot about this from you. We're all talking about crucial conversations at the moment. What does it mean to have a good, crucial conversation? We've talked about a lot of different things, and not everyone in this room will agree with how we've unpacked each of these conversations. So is it about agreeing, or how do we have conversations when we probably don't necessarily see eye to eye? Yeah, I think... um can I encourage people, uh, one of the mistakes we make when we get into crucial conversations is thinking that you have to resolve an outcome in, in one conversation. You know, some of the conversations that I've had have gone on for years. And I really love that scripture in, um, in the New Testament where Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest men of God, actually says we, we see into a glass darkly. And it basically says you're looking into a mirror and it's all fuzzy. And I thought, wow, <laughs> here's the guy who had Jesus turn up to him in an apparition. And he's still trying to figure out what God's all about. And I think, mate, I'm a mile away from that. So then I'm standing there and having an awkward conversation, which is really important uh, to have it because people have questions about, about God. But one of the um, – so there's, there's a great relief in knowing that um, uh, when you think you know a lot, you probably don't know a lot. So to have those conversations and to be humble and curious. And one of the things, one of the little insights that I've had over the years is to, uh, people often have questions about the church and I try and put them back to Jesus and I say it like this. I say, look, Beethoven was one of the greatest music writers ever. But if you've ever heard a grade three or four student play Beethoven, it's not good. Some of us clap, but most of us think, oh, my God, how much, how much longer is this going to last? And I say to people, don't look to the church and the way they play Beethoven. Beethoven's Jesus. Do you know the story of Jesus? And Michael said this last week, uh, in the last couple of weeks, look at Jesus because Jesus is the one I follow. Not the church. I am part of the church. So that's always helpful for me in, a, in an awkward conversation and brings people up thinking, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't even know what that story is all about. So there's a the thought. Mm. And Ellen, you, you're great at having crucial conversations. Um, number one with me. You're always challenging me to be a nicer person. But um, it's fair. And, but but I, I just always respect the way you do it with love and the way you do it with genuine authenticity. How do you go about having hard conversations with people? You know, one of my role models in that was Mother Teresa. Mm. She said, don't waste your time judging people. Just love them. And when I go into conversation with people, I think, how can I make them walk away feeling loved? doesn't have to be that we always agree on things, but how can they feel loved by this conversation? Mm, that's beautiful. Now, speaking of crucial conversations, Shema, you are a doctor. You're one of the leading doctors at the Gold Coast University Hospital. I uh, know you're shaking your head, but it's, it's, it's fairly true. And um, it's been a really hard season to be a doctor uh, the last two years. So number one, I'd just say thank you for your leadership in this field. Thank you for the way that you have been pioneering. 
But one of the one of the hard things, Shami, here is as Christians, you know, the 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 interaction between faith and medicine isn't always easy. And then when Scott spoke, the interaction between miracles and medicine isn't always easy. How, how do you play out your faith in the medical sphere? And what, how do you encourage us to think through medicine and faith well? Really good question. And um, they're really hard questions. These are not easy questions to answer. But I think almost everyone is asking this in our communities right now because health is at the forefront of people's mm. minds at the moment. It's something that people are facing day in, day out. People are having to make different choices. So it's, it, I think it's a very important conversation that we need to be having right now. Now, I'm going to say this outright. I need notes. I'm not a skilled orator like Michael is. And I, I, I don't speak really well like Michael, so please bear with me if I'm flipping through notes. Um, just, You're doing a brilliant job just already. Just so I don't get lost. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think... I think one of the biggest things with medicine, and, I, and Scott spoke beautifully into this um, a couple of weeks ago, that there, there isn't, they're not two different things. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, God right. heals, and he heals through medicine, and he equipped. So Jesus came out and equipped his disciples, and, and we can see that in Mark 16, 18, he talks about the spiritual gifts, and, and, and he sends his disciples out with spiritual gifts of healing, and healing is well and truly still alive today. Mm. It is not something that has gone away, and I think what we have to contend with is that um, medicine and faith do intersect all the time, um, and, and, and how do we do that? Um, one of the writers for the Christian um, Medical and Dentistry um, Fellowship, he writes, his name's Andrew Sloan, and he's a doctor who trained as a doctor, but then went into ministry and a lot of um, th uh, education and theology. And he says this, he says, medicine is itself a sign of God's compassion and a foretaste of the coming kingdom. I'll just say that again. Medicine is itself mm. a sign of God's compassion mm and a foretaste of the coming kingdom. So, so what does that mean? Medicine is a position. So medicine can mean different things right now. You, the, the way you see it might be practitioners, it might be individual practitioners, it might be medicine, it might be a lot of technology, digital medicine. The world of medicine has changed so much recently. What do we then see as Christians? We see capacity, we see skill, we see knowledge, we see power. What does that then mean? That means we have a responsibility to use it for the benefit of the vulnerable, mm -hmm. for whose sake it has been entrusted to them. And to me, this is a kingdom calling. This is what medicine is about. God hasn't stopped healing, but God is also using medicine and the change in medicine, mm -hmm. and that is absolutely a kingdom calling. Yeah. So it's not wrong for Christians to hold on to the hope for a miracle Absolutely. and also use the godly gift of medicine as well at Absolutely. the same time. Yeah, it's Absolutely. beautiful. Yeah, Shame, how would you, you know, there are people in the audience today, they've received a bad diagnosis. Mm. There are, I mean, we've been through, we've all been through moments where we've, we've had that call, we've had that visit from the doctor. How, how would you encourage people who are carrying the burden of a medical diagnosis right now, either personally or in their family? How, how do you step into that space Believing in faith, but also acknowledging reality. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a hard space to be in. And I think, Michael, you spoke really beautifully as part of the suffering sermon last week where you talked about Martha and Mary and when they questioned Jesus when he came when their brother Lazarus had died. And you talked about the two ways Jesus dealt with it, one with theology and the other with compassion. And I think I always tend to go towards the compassion because when people are suffering, they've had a horrible diagnosis, that is often not the time for them to be given theology mm. or why certain things are a certain way. So my approach is really practical, and maybe this is very simple in the way I approach it, but I make time to listen and to love and to support as I practically can because often that, that is what people want. And then I would encourage with prayer. Prayer is often the most powerful gift you can give someone. And even if someone doesn't know Jesus, um, and you may be sitting out there and thinking, oh, it's not for me because I don't know Jesus, but if you tell someone that I'm praying for you, regardless of what they believe in, that is love and support reaching out to them. Then my medical brain kind of kicks in, and I go into sort of practical solutions What's this diagnosis? Let's research. What does the evidence say? Um, where's the science behind this? What are your options? What are the pros and cons? Are, is there treatment? Um, who, who do we go to? Where do we go? And so then I look at those practicalities um, and help with that if I can. But some people don't want to hear that. Mm. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll read this verse, verse from um, Isaiah 41.13. I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. That is just so powerful that God Almighty, he isn't just this mythical out there, but he says, I will take your hand mm. and do not fear, I will help you. Mm. At the worst, in the darkest and bleakest moment, God takes hold of your hand and he helps that's about as practical as it gets. Yeah, that's beautiful, Shame. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You know, just talking about suffering, Ellen, um, you're someone who has walked through the reality of suffering um, for many years now. And, and I think where I'd start, Ellen, is um, you know the power of a medical diagnosis that's not favorable. Can the Word of God offer hope in the middle of that situation? It sure can, Mike. Um, I'm going to talk about pain and suffering the way of physical pain but I don't want to belittle anybody who's here who has suffered with mental pain or emotionally pain pain is just the same um yeah it just looks different for all of us um I at the age 20 got to lead missionaries um around the world and in one of the countries that I was at I got really sick with parasites. And um, I got so sick that I had to be sent home to Norway and hospitalized. And there was one night that I had so much pain that I thought I was dying. And so I had to face some big questions. The faith that I'd been preaching about the Christ that I had prayed other to um, salvation. Do I believe that if this is my last day, do I believe that he's the one that will meet me on the other side? Because I don't know if anybody can continue to live with this pain. Mm. 
And in that moment, I said, I believe. And the peace and the strength and the comfort and the grace and the reassurance that entered the room right there and then was unbelievable. And I knew that my Christ, my Lord, was true. And then I woke up the next morning, so surprised to still be here. But you know what? It had a shift happen. I woke up with a perspective of eternity. I wasn't healed at all. The pain was still very much there. But I knew that God was true. And I knew that his promises was to be with me every single day. Even if it wasn't healing, he was going to give, be there to give me strength and to walk with me every single step of the path. And he has. So you're, you're healed now, Ellen, and everything's fine, like, like life has moved on. Is, is that the, the story? Is that where you are? No, so I'm not healed. Pain is still very much a part of our daily life, but it doesn't control my life. So back then when I was really sick, um, I was actually so sick that I was just laying down, and I was grieving all the good things that I have done. Like I'd... I miss doing good things for people. I miss being out there loving people. I miss being intentional about life. And I was asking God, is this it? And he's telling me, Ellen, do you believe that this is enough? Do you believe that you offering your heart but being is enough? I've created you for a relationship in my image. This is what I'm asking of you is a true relationship. And you're stripped away from everything. You have no strength. You have no ability to do anything in, in any way. And I said, Lord, I don't want the enemy to have the last say. So if I'm now, it's just a being. I want to be a being who is becoming. And to be a being who is becoming, that has to be somebody who's filling them up with truth. And that's where the word of the Lord come in, to strengthen us and um, to guide us forward in a life in pain of suffering. Mm. I want to highlight just that a parasite that you received on a missions trip 20 years ago is still affecting your life today. Um, but there is a hope and there is a faith. And I think that's, that, 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 that should be encouraging for many people here who um, I would say every single person on this panel has experienced a measure of pain and suffering um, and miracles, and then not the answer to miracles that we've hoped for. You know, you know Dad, I've watched you walk through this. Um, as my father, I've seen you suffer for many years, um, having to raise me as your son. <laughs> and, um, but there might have been some other forms of pain. But there, there, there have been. There's been some dark moments in our family. Um, how, would, how would you comment on that? Yeah, it's, it's really important for people maybe here today who uh, I know people look at your life sometimes and uh, I had someone say to me once, oh, you've, you've obviously had a pretty good life. Um, and just to give you some idea, it's nice to hear people talking out of having been there, as, as almost all of us have. Um, I'm certainly Michael's father and we have another two daughters and I have one wife, Kerry, over here. And uh, the three females in Michael and my life have all been at death's door from cancer. Uh, I've stood beside the bed of uh, Kerry and Kate and Danica and had to ask the question, what happens if I lose them? Um, so 
my my point on this is having really worked through this from the front line, not not you know some philosophical thing. And and I sometimes take a, a, a different view. I look at the Bible as a story, as this big narrative. You know, it starts in Genesis and finishes in Revelation. And for me, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is that when I look at the story of the Bible, it's what I experience out here. And the Bible says, well, you're going to have some really good times and you're going to have some really crap times as well. And that's kind of, some people will be more crappy than others, but, you know, it's, it's, that's what life's kind of all about. And so it's interesting, I work in a secular organisation and people will often say, oh, you know, but it's, it's so unfair. And I think... The only reason you would think that it's unfair is if you think that there should be something better, which is the Christian story. And, and I think that suffering is, uh, is actually part of the story that God says this is the nature of the universe. And so I, I sit back and understand this is actually going to be a part of my life and in the same way I have to understand how to love and pray and in one sense you sort of got to learn how to work through suffering as well. And I think it's a great uh, contribution of Christian, the Christian story to human life to say this is what's going to happen and of course God is going to be with you and I just love that scripture that you were saying before about God will be there. But I'd also say this, the difference between faith and science is that science says I need to see it before I believe it and Christianity says you've got to believe it before you see it and that's, that's, that's the big difference in Christianity. So I kind of get it where people say, no, nah, I can't go there and I say, well, you're never going to see what I'll see then or believe what I believe. So mm, there we go. That's powerful. We've had, we've had a lot of different um, weeks that have been important for people. And I would hazard a guess that the week on women in leadership um, was a really significant moment in the life of our church. Some of you would be sitting there saying, why were you talking about women in leadership? Of course women should lead. Others of you know how controversial this topic has been. Um, and, but I was so pr- proud um, that you know, when Pastor Alex hopped up and just led through Scripture, not culture, saying the Bible points to this reality. Um, and Shamal, I would love to hear just from you. How have you seen uh, the role of women in leadership, both inside and outside the church, shift and change over your lifetime? Yeah, I, think, I think women in leadership have changed a lot, even in just the last decade. Um, and I, I think it's really great that the church is starting to have these conversations. And Alex spoke beautifully into this. He talked about the Apostle Junia. Um, and he talked about Phoebe, who was probably one of the first people to describe and explain Romans. And um, and I think the Bible has actually earmarked through through the times um, of how God uses women in leadership. Um, and so, to me, that there's no doubt that that is how it should be. Mm. And maybe for some people sitting out there, it's why are we talking about this? Because it should. It should just be. Mm. Why is this something that we have to talk about and change? But it, 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 like you say, it's something that the church has um, struggled with. But some of the changes I've seen recently are, I, I definitely see a lot more women in, in leadership, but women are now more accepted um, and able to measure um, through meritocracy. So just like everybody else, based on abilities, gifts, and the qualifications, and it is really important because we need to see women as influencers. Mm. And that is an important narrative for every child 
male and female to see um, that that is something that the church accepts. I was reading some stuff recently, um, and um, I think this is this is something we need to think about. If the church will not support women in leadership, then how can we accept, expect the world to acknowledge? Um, and I was reading some statistics around gender side, um, and especially in Asian countries, um, 20 million female babies will get aborted before they're born because they're self-selected out because they believe that women are not as important. Um, I was born in Malaysia, and when I was born, my, my mom tells me my grandfather didn't want to come to see me in the hospital because I was female. And, and don't get me wrong, I love my grandfather. He was a great man, and, and he lived his life. Um, he's gone now, and he changed his mind eventually, um, I think within about a day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but um, it, it was a reality in my life. And, and so then you might say to me, why is this important in the church? Why, why is that applicable? Because that is then the outpouring that the world sees. Mm. And if the church will not address it, and if the church will not give it importance, we can't keep treating women like they are not as important or not as able or don't have the propensity that predisposes them to leadership. Mm. We, need to, we need to change that. And we're only operating at 50% of our strength then, unless we, 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 we are making women in leadership a That's priority it. in our church. Yeah. Amen. I really That's appreciate it. that. Shema and Ellen, both phenomenal female leaders. Ellen, my question to you would be, how do we champion women into places of leadership? Well, Mike, I think that we just as a church should always strive to be a church that raise up any leaders male and female, that we champion people to find their calling, that we champion them to walk out their calling. And if we truly believe that we are created in the image of God, we all have equal value. And so I continue to pray that we'll live that out here at, at church and believe in having adventurous faith. Yeah, amen. You know, and and if, you, if you weren't here for the week on Women in Leadership, I'd encourage you to go listen to the sermon. Probably one of the most phenomenal sermons I've heard on it in my life. I spent three to four hours with Pastor Alex and Scott. We walked through the Bible together to really understand the narrative of Scripture around women in leadership. Um, and, and exegetically, Alex reads the Bible devotionally in Greek of the morning. You know, what a weird flex that is. Um, but for us mere humans, it's, it's encouraging to know this isn't a response to culture. It's a response to Scripture. Our executive coordinator at New Life, Liz McNamee, always reminds me that it's by the age of nine that girls make the choice that they will never be able to lead like a man. By the age of nine. They already self-select out of half of the opportunities that will be presented to them both. That's why we will be a church that ensures every young child and every woman knows that they have equal opportunity because that's what we believe Scripture points to as equal images of God. Dad, you are the husband of a wife, the father of two daughters. Um, it's probably, and your COO, in fact, a lot of your executive at work are females. What does championing women in leadership look like for you? Yeah, um, thanks, Michael. That's true. I work with uh, about six other executives. Uh, we run a, a fairly big organisation and uh, five of them are, are women and they are just so exceptional. They're better at their jobs than I am at, at their jobs, that's for sure. 
But there's two aspects I'd like to make here, uh, Michael. I met uh, my wife, Kerry, who certainly at nine was not thinking about acquiescing about anything. She was, um, when we got uh, married, I remember saying to Kerry one afternoon, oh, let me help you with uh, dinner. Well, let me help you with the nappies. And Kerry sort of said, now listen, big boy, you're not going to help me with anything. This is a job that someone needs to do. And at the moment, I'm doing it. But you'll probably do it next. So let's get away from this help thing. So I've sort of lived in that, oh, okay. And I didn't see a big deal about that. I'd only just become a Christian. The second thing was that I look at the Bible. Again, it's the big broad narrative, like this big story. And I just see God using women all over the place. Um, and and I, I, I've really never been able to pick a scripture out and say, you know, this is what Paul says about this, because I see the whole Bible and God just affirming women in such a strong way. And, uh, and I, I just think, you know, when God, uh, when Jesus came to the earth, he was born of a woman. But just think about it. That was a choice by God to do it a certain way. And then when Jesus died and rose again, there were only women there to actually see him rise again. Then they went to all the guys and said, hey, he's alive. And guess what the guys said? Stop lying. And, you know, there's these wonderful parts where the Lord's saying, you know, they see it. They see it and the guys didn't. Now, you might not like my theology, but there's a, there's a sense there where I've, got a, I've actually thought through some of the theological positions I've got and I'm just sharing with you today how I've seen it. I'm not saying that you're right and I'm wrong or I'm right and you're wrong, but I feel very strongly and have reflected in my life. Um, both of my girls and my wife are, are in leadership roles and I support them 100%. What a move now, as we just kind of start to land the plane here. We started this whole thing on deconstruction. Dad, I'm going to go to you first. Because when I preached on deconstruction, um, I I talked a lot about my own journey of deconstructing my faith and my doubt. And I probably didn't talk about this enough, but you were really pivotal in that as my father, because you've walked through your journey of deconstruction and doubt, of a moment where your faith kind of came apart and you needed to put it back together. What did did that look like? What did that mean? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, I became a Christian. It was a very black and white experience. Uh, one minute I didn't know Jesus and the next minute it was just everywhere. And I thought, oh my goodness. And then uh, I ended up um, in a situation. I've had two what we call deconstruction moments in my life. Um, one of them uh, was around about when Michael was born. And I was going into, I was in a church that was very much focused on the end times and Jesus coming back and you know, this is great, you know, we'll all, we'll, all, we'll all get saved and go to heaven. And that was kind of the whole idea. Jesus was coming back. And, um, and I got into education, Christian education, and I started to ask, what's the purpose of education if we're all just, our purpose is to go to heaven? So I went through this deconstruction of thinking, well, I don't know, if I'm going to be a leader in education, I've got to have an understanding of the purpose for education. Why learn chemistry if, if your only goal is to go to heaven? Now, this may all sound really simple to you, but at the time, it was cathartic in my faith. And so I studied and I read and I began to understand. And, and that's what I love about the entry of uh, Uniting Church when we come in. It says more lawyers like Jesus, more teachers, more builders, more... Because it's not saying, you know, let's create more pastors who are important. But, you know, a pastor is no more important than a carpenter or a plumber. You can still be called to be all of those things. And so that was a a huge catharsis in my life because I was asking the question, 
do I believe in Christian education? Do I believe? I was trying to figure out my life. For those of you who've got a theological bent, I got into a bit of the reform thought of our we are called of God to do what, what our talents are to the glory of God. And that really helped. And then probably the most recent, I uh, had a second time. Uh, Kerry, as I said, almost died of cancer. We had uh, lost almost everything in an investment deal. Um, we had some really awful things happening to all of our children at the time and life was really dark. And it was so, and I, and I, I began to really question, well, where the heck is God? You know, and it was deeply painful. And um, I remember one night, uh, my daughter, Kate, my second daughter, um, she's sitting there outside on the porch. She was going through her own doubt in faith at the time. And she just said to me, so dad, still believe in God? And just painted there, everything was going wrong. And, uh, and I had to honestly say to my daughter, Kate, I'm not sure. And I'm figuring that out. And I think that's what deconstruction is. You're actually saying, I'm going to embrace this doubt and I'm going to actually figure out what I believe because a lot of people are in the doubt and they're not actually seeking. They're just saying, well, I just doubt. And so I I went on this really strong and committed journey because I was either going to be a Christian or not. I wasn't going to sit in the middle. And I remember when I first came to this church because I was sort of going around to different churches to see if I could make sense of, of anything. And um, I remember coming to this church, I went to a men's group and they said to me, uh, they put all these photos out. There was a group of about 15 of us and they said, choose a photo that reflects your life. And all these guys were pulling out photos of men and women walking down the beach holding hands and God's hand coming down. And and I chose the the twin towers in New York with the plane crashing into the side of it. And I just showed everyone, I said, this is where my life is. Seriously. And if I don't sort it out, I'm gone. I tell you, I'm gone. And so I, 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 I seriously began to uh, search and read and talk to people and, um, and it troubled my family because they knew I was searching. But I, and, and I'll finish with this. I remember there was a moment when I thought, God, I don't know where you are. I can't feel you. I can't hear you. But I do not want to live in a world where I don't believe in God. So I literally said, God, even if you're not there, I'm going to believe that you're there because if I believe you're not there, then I am totally alone. Now, you might not like that. I didn't have some Shekinah glory moment, but it was interesting. I made a decision that I didn't want to live the life of doubt. I wanted to fight for faith. And it was only then and in the years that followed, and I, you know, Kerry and I have been here now for probably 15 years, um, but there, there, was, there was that time that I started to rebirth and so that was a very serious deconstruction of my faith but it rebuilt it again and still here today. So I'm and still doubting at times but I, uh, faith always comes out on top. I'm going to ask one final question. Dad, I'm going to ask this of you, then Shane, I'm going to ask it of you and finish with Ellen. There are people here today doubting. There are questions, there are concerns. What would you say to someone who is in that moment where doubt is gnawing at their faith? Oh, I'd say that uh, doubt is a part of faith in the same way that light is a part of darkness, in the same way that love is a part of a lack of love. You don't know real joy unless you've been sad. And in the same way, Kerry and I have been married for a long time now and, and you work on that love all the time. And there are times when 
I frustrate the heck out of Kerry, but we work on it. And, and I think faith is the same. So I would say to you, work on finding out faith and understand that doubt doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It's just part of building your faith up. And I find, you know, that the older I get, some of the, the bigger doubts come and so I need a bigger faith. Uh, and Paul has some things to say about that too. So don't be, don't be threatened by doubt. It's just part of faith. Shema? Um, I, I always approach things with practical things. but And again, so I would say it's okay to doubt. There's nothing wrong with doubt. Talk to people, people close to you, and that's what I do. People that you can entrust. And so then they, they can be accountable with you. Um, and you can trust them with whatever it is that you're going through in the doubt. Um, not to wallow in doubt, because that can take over things mm. sometimes. Um, and, and I think it's okay to look for evidence. In John 20, 27, doubting, it, it, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And then Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out, touch my side. Um, he essentially is showing him physical evidence of, of what he went through and that he's now risen and this is Jesus and it's Christ. So... I th- and, and it's okay, and I'll just and, and I'll and I'll leave it with this. In Romans five three to five, God, he he talks about suffering producing perseverance, mm. perseverance character, character then hope, mm. and hope does not put us to shame, Amen. because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Amen. Ellen. Yeah, I would just say I hope that by having these conversations here at church that we've inspired you to not do this journey alone, but um, but talk to each other, talk to some of us, and um, and I hope that you won't feel judged by anything that you're going through. We need each other, and if we can't be honest and real, then we're missing half of the point. And so let's do this together. Mm, amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been rich. It's been beautiful. And as you guys make your way up the platform, can we thank these guys for coming and joining me? And so, friends, we finished this series where we started it, in John chapter 3. A Pharisee comes to Jesus late at night, and he knocks on the door. He's got questions. They're controversial. They're not heard by the people in his world well. And as Nicodemus talks to Jesus about what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to have life? Jesus starts to reflect with him. And I just want to let you know this, that Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He's not concerned with your doubts. He welcomes them. He is not surprised by the thoughts of your heart. He wants to talk about them with you. He wants to speak into them. Because that moment with, Job, with Nicodemus led to one of the greatest revelations by the Apostle John, who writes in John chapter 3, and moments after that conversation comes to an end, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. John 3.17 goes on to say, Jesus didn't come to condemn you for your doubts. He didn't come to condemn you for your sin or your shame. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Friends, it is safe to bring these conversations to Christ as we become more people, more like Jesus. 
Would you join with me as we pray? Then Reverend Bradley Foote is going to lead us in communion. Gracious God, whether we are close to you today or we're far, whether we know your presence well or we are in the valley of despair or the desert of doubt, Jesus, I pray, good shepherd, come find us. We as your sheep do not find you, you find us. As you came into the world to find a doubting, scared, broken people, Holy Spirit, find us again. I thank you, God, that you don't always bring answers as much as you bring a conversation, a relationship, a direction to trust and to follow. Lead us in this journey of discipleship that we might see more people become more like Jesus. In your mighty, precious name we pray. Amen.